There's something about sugary or creamy or fried that screams treat. Well, at least it does to my mind. There are those for whom a crunchy carrot baton and hummus are a reward, but for most of us, I suspect that we'd walk blinkered past a quinoa and courgette tray bake in favour of a donut any day of the week. But are we missing a trick by being slaves to our taste buds rather than paying attention to what our bodies might actually need? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends. From students who are overzealous and anxious to those who are underperforming yet nonchalant. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take some comfort that you're not alone. And, perhaps more importantly, I hope that you'll take away some insights and advice that can help you to support your own team, so that they'll not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm thrilled to be chatting with nutritional therapist, author, and presenter, Louise Messia. Louise has her own podcast too, Louise's Health Kick podcast which you can find on Spotify and all other good podcast players after you've listened to this episode, obviously. Louise, thank you so much for joining me. And I want to begin by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's not a reference back to my donut penchants. But why is it that we tend to associate healthy eating with dieting and, as a result, see it almost as a punishment? That's a really interesting way to start. And I spend a lot of my time on the very early years of nutrition in terms of very young, so naught to five, because this is really where we start to form and shape our food relationships. And often when sugary foods like the donuts you mentioned, when those types of foods are introduced to a very small child, and I have my own personal opinions on whether they should be because they're obviously nutritionally devoid, etc, etc. But when they are, they tend to be presented in a way that the grown up giving the food is so excited to share that food with the small child that the small child obviously picks up on that excitement and, you know, anticipation that the grown up is giving them something. And of course, they fall into the same category that everyone else does. They're thinking this is a this is a good thing, this is a reward, this is a treat. Biologically speaking, it's anything but. But it all starts very early on, and we we as grown ups, unfortunately, are the ones who start that process. And we can use language, and I, I do a lot on food language and how we present food. So, with a child, we may well say, "Oh, let's have a treat." or the dreaded, you know, finish your broccoli and you can have chocolate, which I have very strong feelings on. <laughs> and we start to create thought patterns and food habits that really elevate these foods that do nothing for us biologically. But once those pathways are established, very hard, as you say, to walk past, you know, them in favour of a healthy food. So we need to start young otherwise the pathways and the connections and all the food habits and addictions and it is an addiction start to take shape and then we spend our adult life 
battling with the sort of this is really bad and I don't like calling food bad but, you know people do this is really bad for me but I can't help it I'm going to have to eat it and then we feel guilty and then comes the emotional eating and the stress eating and the food guilt food shame and all of those things that come with it my mum has got an awful lot to answer for then blame <laughs> the parents exactly exactly right <laughs> What you say, I completely agree with and, and can picture my childhood of, oh, let's go out for ice cream or whatever it might be as being like an event, a, a real a real thing. But I just can't see my brain firing in the same way over eating broccoli, which I like, and chocolate, which I love. It doesn't fire in the same way at all. That's why if we consider sort of how humans are meant to eat and what's happened to us in the last sort of 50 years, really, that's when the food landscape has really changed. And we have to look at what's happened to the food landscape and what's happened to global health and the correlation between the two. And the the fundamental difference is that the foods that used to be very rare, very occasional, something to enjoy and savour and and be a treat when treat was probably the right word to use for them. They were that, you know, they were few and far between. And so we could have them and enjoy them and not create the same addictions because we couldn't because they weren't available they were able to be on a pedestal and they were able to be part of a predominantly healthy diet. Now, of course, the food landscape has switched completely to the majority of foods fit into the nutritionally devoid, which is empty calories, hyper palatable foods, which fire up the brain in a very unnatural way. So they fire up the brain in a way that real foods can't do because the heady combination of sugar, trans fats, which are the artificial fats that go into processed foods that are not sort of a natural fat, and salt does not appear in nature. So of course it activates all the sort of the pleasure and reward receptors of the brain and that is hyper palatable. So we get very excited about it. And of course, the the reward center of the brain is where addictions are formed as well. So because they're everywhere, because we're bombarded by them, because that is the majority of the food landscape, they make up the bulk of the diet. And because of the brain connections, we are able to sort of give in to that biology and let it take over. And most people I talk to in terms of adults are not in control of that relationship. They will eat an entire packet of biscuits and not even have noticed that they've eaten it. That's not being in control or enjoying the food. So yes and no, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't fire up the brain in the same way. And broccoli will never fire up the brain in that way. No real food will. It's really, really interesting because I think, as you say, actually, when I was younger, I remember the treats were exactly that treat. So it wasn't that the ice cream is any worse for you now than it was before or all of these other takeaways and fast foods etc but they're much more prevalent now and I think because we find ourselves leading busy lives I think quite often we'll find ourselves doing more of these things maybe there's more disposable income some more takeaways or more eating out and that kind of thing so the treats themselves are still okay as treats but what I'm hearing is that we should be doing more to to balance that yeah, and I think if we call them treats, we're kind of we're kind of putting nutritionally devoid foods upon a pedestal that they don't deserve. So I think we have to reevaluate how we view foods. And yes, it is difficult because we are we are in an obesogenic environment. So everywhere we look, there are foods that are not designed for our health, but they're designed for our convenience. And some, I think one in five people in the UK have a, a diet which is predominantly, so 80% made up of ultra-processed foods. 
one in five children has about 40% of their diet made up of ultra processed foods. So that's all, you know, really unhealthy foods, but really cheap. You mentioned people having more disposable income, a large percentage of people don't. And the only foods that they can access are the ultra processed foods that are highly convenient, but highly available and always really cheap. So I'm focusing a lot at the moment on the health and wealth divide in the UK and the fact that food poverty is pushing up that health and wealth divide and making people's choices to be able to afford healthy food just completely unachievable. So there's kind of a real split between health and sort of the the food impact. People with high disposable income are not necessarily healthier because, as you say, they can have more takeaways. They can go for the more convenient options that are not healthy. But then we have the people at the other end of the spectrum who don't have a choice in that. And the only foods they can access, unfortunately, are not healthy because it is on average three times more expensive to buy healthy food so it's it's an uphill struggle to try and be healthy it's much easier to not be mm, is, as you said that's that's crazy that the the healthier stuff the less processed is is more expensive and and that much more accessible i guess as well doesn't it? i mean brands and promoted i mean there's all of this behind um whatever you find in the supermarket as well as the mcdonald's and other things whereas actually you don't get branded vegetables in the same way it's not just doesn't doesn't happen does it no going back to what you were saying about not putting this on a pedestal and obviously being best to start uh, younger so that the attitude of the food it's that it's not treat like as you say changing the, the language that we use it's all well and good if you're starting um in that naught to five bracket but when your children are teens as, as many of our listeners will be what kinds of things can you do that can help i suppose engage and, and maybe even just begin that conversation with your team to start looking sensibly at not having the McDonald's and maybe uh, looking at the snacks that they have in a different way. There's a few things. I mean, obviously, once we get past a certain age, it's not to say that, you know, everyone is doomed and they are destined to a lifetime of healthy eating because that's not the case. What we don't want to see is people battling with their food relationships. So as I say, feeling guilty, feeling, you know, ill ease with their food choices because of their body size or any of those things, which unfortunately these foods do fuel. The brain is amazing in terms of its, you know, ability to bounce back and, and reform neural connections. And so we can change dietary patterns and habits that we root those food habits, addictions and food behaviors. But the thing with, with anyone in teens in particular, probably, is nobody wants to be told what to do. So nobody wants to have Somebody say, right, from now on, we're having no more takeaways, we're having no chocolate in the house, we're having no crisps, no donuts, no whatever this house is now, free of those. Because when we do that, and this is why the diet industry is the biggest example of a, a fail but successful business, it's basically a business built on failure. Because when we do that, we want it more. When we're told you can't have it, we want it more. So just simply saying no and right, we're banning everything will never work. No matter if you think, well, you have you know five McDonald's a week, that's really not healthy, right? You're not having any more McDonald's. You might be doing it with the best intention, but it's never gonna, never gonna work. I find the only way that people will ever make a change themselves is to understand why they're making the change. So what's relevant to the team? Is it exams? Is it that you know they're really struggling and we will touch on sort of how food helps brain function but that could be an angle if they are really struggling academically and they just feel a bit confused and can't concentrate 
then that could be an angle of, well, maybe the foods you're eating are not fueling that. And you'd feel a lot more at ease with your study and you'd be able to sleep better and feel more refreshed and ability, you'd have that ability to concentrate more if we make some dietary changes. But you need to be in control of those. But this is the reason why. It could be an athletic thing. So they could be wanting to do something better in a particular sport that they do. And it could be putting the spin on their dietary intake. And it's better with athletic performance because a lot of big sports stars are very into their nutrition. So they're good role models in terms of, you know, going against the norm of the sort of junk food and and really looking after what they put into their body because at the end of the day, it's fuel. So an athletic performance is always a good one. But it could also be, and I don't like to touch too much on this, but body image, not necessarily weight, but skin. You know, lots of teenagers have problems with their skin. It's, it's It's a hormonal thing, but diet makes it a lot worse. So sugary foods and and high fat foods are really damaging for the skin. And a lot of teens obviously are very body conscious and and image is very important for teens. And so, you know, putting a spin on it will actually, we don't want to focus too much on the aesthetic, but your skin, you know, can be improved greatly by the food you eat or can be, you know, made worse by the food you eat. So they have to be in control. They have to have their own reason why to make a change. Simply saying no will never work mm-hmm. that's so true as well and you can see that in in so many different other aspects of parenting a teen is that as a parent you we're at that that position now where we're not leading in the same way that we used to so with a a, a much younger child actually if you determine not to have mcdonald's five then then they won't because there's just no access to it but with obviously older children and coming into those teen years they're either leaving college and coming home whichever way they want to or school and and picking up these sweets and treats. So having that sensible, almost adult conversation with them and treating them in the way that you would want someone to talk to you. Because I think it seems to me that in many cases, the issues that parents have with food and their relationship is reflected in their children. So that could make it a much more sensible and meaningful conversation, I guess. Mm, Absolutely. So I love the um, handful of conversation starters, I guess, that you've talked about there. And they're going to be the kinds of things that resonate with so many parents out there. I mean, my my child is tired. We'd put that down to the fact that they're on TikTok and Reels until whatever clock it is in the morning. Um, and concentration and thinking about brain power, all of these kinds of things. And I'm fascinated to find out what uh, impact our food choices could have that could help our teens to really achieve as, as best they can. Well, one interesting thing about teens is their brain is still not full size. It's not fully developed. So it's still actually growing. Um, So the brain still needs an awful lot of energy to carry on building it to full adult size. And it could take until 22, 23 to actually get to that size. So whilst the brain is growing and developing, it still needs an awful lot of um, essential fatty acids, so EFAs generally. Um, there's four different types of fats. I won't name them because they have ridiculously long names. <laughs> four fats that make up 40% of our brain. So those four fats really are crucial to building and developing the brain. But as grown-ups, they're more important for us maintaining our cognitive faculties you know, and trying to, um, to hold on to them. But we can't do anything about, you know, building and developing our brain because it's already full size but for teens their brain is still growing and a massive proportion of the energy of the food they eat still goes up to their brain and so if a massive proportion of energy going to their brain is a massive proportion of empty calories then there's not much going on to support 40 percent of the brain which is 
the essential fats, which are really important in the frontal lobes. They're really important for problem solving, attention, memory, you know, all the things that teens need to be good at when they're going through exams. Otherwise, you have this sort of like a, I talk about it like a veil of confusion. And it's just like, you'd be looking at something and you can't take it in. And it's really frustrating. You'll read the same line over and over again, or you'll listen to someone and then they'll look at you and you realize you've not listened to the word they said, even though you've been watching their mouth move. And all of these things, you know, are because potentially there's nothing going to fuel, you know, nutritionally going up to fuel the 40% mm-hmm. of the brain that is helping that team with problem solving, with concentration and memory and all those things. So essential fatty acids are always where I start. They are so important, not just for that, but for mood and behavior, which also is very important for teens. Well, certainly for the, for the parents of teens, that's particularly important to manage that. <laughs> They're all over the place, you know, and they can't help that. So when we throw into the mix food that disrupts that natural hormone balance and sends the blood sugar up and the blood sugar down, their hormones are going all out of kilter anyway. And then we're throwing in food that exacerbates that and we're not putting in the food that naturally balances the mood. And essential fatty acids are amazing at helping to balance and regulate moods. So much so that they're actually used as supplementation in young offenders institutes to minimize behavioral issues and and violent outbursts. That's how important they are. And so what are the best sources? The answer can't be just don't eat chocolate and don't eat. You obviously need to get them from somewhere else. So so what what are the best sources of of these essential fatty acids? There's very few, um, and fish is the main. So salmon, um, mackerel, so the, the traditional sort of EFAs, would be salmon and mackerel if you're vegan or vegetarian or you don't eat fish then it is still possible but supplementation is normally required because of the fish-based element of of the the efas that's needed you can get some essential fatty acids in seeds like flax seeds and some nuts are really good sources as well but mainly fish and i would normally advise supplementation even if we're introducing better foods and everything else I think in terms of you know making sure you know there's lots of good supplements out there with with EFAs in them there's age-appropriate ones which have the right balance of, of what that child needs at that time so I would always recommend those even if their diet is amazing. That's really interesting so my daughter's a vegetarian and certainly wouldn't have the salmon or the mackerel but she does take vitamin supplements and iron supplements because obviously they're the things that tend to um, be lacking mm-hmm. from a vegetarian diet that, that I know about. So can you get these supplements that aren't fish-based? I'm, I'm thinking back to my own childhood and, and the horror of cod liver oil. Type <laughs> yes. I'm not sure why that's come to mind, um, having just shown that I had a lovely mum who wanted to feed me ice cream all the time. Um, apparently someone somewhere must have wanted to force-feed me castor oil and, and cod liver oil. <laughs> So you can get these supplements that are actually vegan and vegetarian friendly. Yes, you can. And there's an uh, like an algae, a certain algae um, specific. It sounds delightful, doesn't it? An algae, <laughs> the real which is uh, I know, which is uh, which is a good source of EFA for vegans. I know she's not vegan, but it's it's a vegan one. So you can't really get much in a vegetarian diet, to be honest. That would match an EFA, but certainly the algae supplement, if not going for a fish supplement, would would work. And so you said that you'd recommend taking these even if you had a good diet. I'm presuming, though, that a good diet, and I'm hoping you can explain what that is, is still the cornerstone of what they should be doing as a a minimum. So for you then, what does a good diet look like? 
That's a very big question. Um, it does vary. It, there is no, this is a good diet, really, because it does vary on individuals, their, their size, their shape, their out, you know, their activity, their needs, et cetera, et cetera. But most people don't eat enough fruit and vegetables. And if they think they do, they're probably not, because what's happened to the way we farm and produce vegetables is they're growing in a soil which is of diminished quality in terms of the mineral quality. So they're starting off in soil that's because the farming turns around quickly, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not given the chance to replenish the minerals as much. So when we look at, say, a vegetable and we look at the nutritional content, it's likely to be less than that because that's based on it growing in optimal soil, growing naturally, not artificial farming where we want it quickly. So it's perhaps harvested before we would like it to be because we expect we live in a very immediate environment. We expect to have everything all year round, you know, no matter if they're not in season, I don't care. I want strawberries in December. You know, we've got to be like that now, unfortunately. So we expect things and, and sometimes we may look and say, why is the strawberry massive? And then not question, really. It's not naturally meant to be like that at this time of year. I think that's fascinating. So the fact that actually the vegetables aren't necessarily as, I mean, obviously more healthy than not, but not as healthy as we think they might be. No, they're not as healthy as we think we might be, which is when, when there's this five a day, you know, it's not five a day. Because if you think you are eating five a day, you're probably getting the nutritional value of three. and are you actually eating enough to get five in the first place? So I always go higher with, with that. And it should always be more vegetables and fruit. Fruit is amazing, but it's also high in fruit sugar. And if we have too much of that, obviously, we have the same issues with weight. Not the same issues because we get vitamins and minerals and it's a, the body's able to metabolize it more than added sugar. But we still don't want to be full of fruit. We want more vegetables because they contain more fiber. They contain regulation of blood sugar better etc etc so we always need to go more with fruits and vegetables and when I say most people don't eat enough there's a very large percentage of the western population that are malnourished and malnourished um, actually the global health report back in 2016 so a while ago changed the definition of malnutrition because it used to be associated with starvation in countries where there literally was famine that's what we would think of malnutrition that's changed from that global health report, malnutrition is now defined as a bad diet. And the, within populations in most Western countries, we have obesity and malnutrition within the same populations. And that is the combination of the food landscape change and the fact that we're not eating enough of the vegetables. And even if we think we are, we're probably not because they've changed as well. Um, so as I say, it's an uphill struggle. <laughs> you definitely, you have, you've definitely painted that almost like a battle you can't win. Um, <laughs> that, I mean, the, the fact that you can have obesity and malnourishment in one society or one, one place is just bewildering, isn't it? That it's, you can overeat and not get what you need from the foods that you're eating. 44% of, of populations within the Western, well, I say the Western, but wherever there's a Western diet, 44% of people are obese and malnourished in the same bracket. Because I think for me, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that you can throw into that conversation with your team. And certainly with them, um, as I say, I mean, she has a vegetarian diet, so sort of presumed that we start from a relatively healthy base, not just because actually what she eats are vegetables, but actually because then she doesn't really have the McDonald's and the Burger Kings and all of this fast food. Having said that, I do understand that that's also sort of a um, a bit of a whitewash because we'll still quite happily have pizza. 
um, and chips <laughs> and all these other things. And I'm aware as well that her diet doesn't include a lot of pulses and um, beans and and stuff like that because actually her taste buds, I guess, just haven't sort of developed to the point where she enjoys them or wants them. But having a sensible conversation about it does definitely seem like the way to go forward and, and sort of trying to educate both of us, I guess, uh, is would seem like the right way forward. Mm, definitely. And I think the thing with teens, they are the future health statistics. So when we look at, you know, future statistics of, of the UK and we're looking at predicted health trends, they are including and relating to teenagers now in those health statistics. And teenagers are, should be more than aware that, well, actually, they might not be because many adults aren't aware that children and teens are, are not exempt from adult diseases. So there's been a child as young as three in America, admittedly not in the UK, a child as young as three with type 2 diabetes. Wow. That used to be adult onset. In the UK, we've got over 3,400 children living with type 2 diabetes. There was one in the year 2000, over 3,400 now, 20 years later. That is continuing to go in the wrong direction. Teenagers are falling into this future health statistics of the UK, which is by 2030, half the population will be obese. That type 2 diabetes is, you know, already is the most expensive condition to the NHS. The comorbidities with type 2 diabetes are horrendous, and yet it's not seen by many as a serious condition. It can be controlled with metformin, blah, 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 blah. No, it's serious, and it's life-limiting, and children are getting it. And so I think to have a sensible conversation with teens, teens think they're immortal. Of course they do. They, you know, they. I, I live near a high school. They walk into the road without looking in on their phone, don't know where they're going. They assume the world will stop for them. Everyone is like that as a teen. They just assume they're immortal. They never think anything bad will happen to them. They think they can, you know, do what they like and they're invincible. Most teens feel that way. And I think a sensible conversation with them to say, look, that's not the case. And your body has to last you hopefully a very long time. Um, it's not about how you look necessarily. I know that's important to many. And I think we will touch on that in, a, in another episode. But it's about what your body is going to be able to do for you in your lifetime. And hopefully that is a long time. And they need to start, as do us grown-ups who perhaps have not made those links and considerations and we're just kind of ticking along. Thinking, well, I'm not that old yet, you know. And take some ownership ourselves and think, well, actually, my health is my responsibility. My health is in my hands to a large extent because 80% of, of I'm, this is really morbid, I'm sorry, but 80% of death in the UK is due to lifestyle. So we can influence and control our probability by a large extent. You're right, that absolutely is morbid. But it's that startling kind of thing, I think, that is perhaps needed isn't it? to sort of wake us up a bit, because I think it's so easy to be able to dismiss it, as I just did. We have um, pizzas every now and again, and actually it doesn't feel like it's that bad. But when you start looking at it in context, not just as a, a slippy slope, but actually the detriment that's being caused right now will have an impact in, in later years. It goes even further than that, if I can get even more morbid. Um, so what we do okay. <laughs> can potentially impact on our yet unborn grandchildren through um, epigenetics. So our epigenetic imprint 
is the imprint we leave, not via DNA, which is set in stone, but via the epigenetic imprint, the epigenome, which is influenced by our lifestyle. So if we live our lives a certain way, and obesity and type 2 diabetes are both epigenetic imprint traits, we can pass that on, those traits, to our children. And it doesn't stop there. It goes down to the next generation as well. And if we look over the last 40 years, we can see that's happening already. We can see that that epigenetic imprint has already had an influence. And for the first time in human evolution, we are seeing a decline in evolution rather than an increase. We are not, if we think back to Darwin and, you know, the species adapt to their environment to get stronger. We're adapting to our environment, but we're not getting stronger. You know, we're adapting to the environment. We're getting, you know, we're more sedentary and we're more reliant on convenience food and we're more stressed and we don't relax enough. And we live in a world where, Everything is instant gratification. We've lost the art of delaying gratification. And, we, you know, we've lost so many things. But we are now seeing a prediction that there is a generation now that will not live as long as their parents. And if that happens for one generation because of the epigenetic imprint, it's likely to happen for the next generation as well. So we're seeing a decline in longevity of life. But for those who are living longer, we're seeing a decline in the quality of the years that they're living. So you can live a long time and not necessarily have the quality of life in those years. So I'm sorry, it's a very depressing picture and painting. <laughs> we can influence it. We don't need to just sleepwalk into it thinking, oh, it's all right, won't do me any harm. Because it is and it will. That is, that. I mean, that's, that is definitely an alarming picture. I used to worry that, actually, the only thing I ever really worried about was that I was genetically going to pass on the McGirl nose down the line. But now I'm now I think my love of donuts could actually be coming in and <laughs> working its way down the family tree. Something that we've heard in previous episodes, lightening the tone <laughs> just a little, um, is actually that, that um, our children, and certainly teens, don't do as we say, but they will do as we do. And so I think, again, that just sort of reinforces that fact that if you can have the conversation with the teen, but also model the kinds of behaviours and um, approaches and attitudes that we want our children to have, then that's the kind of thing that's much more likely to um, much more likely to stick. Mm-hmm. And I think also what I love about um, everything we've heard, apart from the crushingly depressing bits, which I think, as we say, are are a, a catalyst you would hope to um, to do something about rather than just ignore as being. Um, doom-mongering, mm-hmm. uh, is the fact that actually there are any number of levels under which it's it's the right thing to do for our teens right now. Thinking back to when you were talking about the um, the acids and the the positive impact that that can have on everything from complexion, uh, which is important for teens right the way through to concentration and, and brain power. So where where is it that we could find out more about the kinds of foods? So, so uh, from here, spurred into action, how do we start? So I am um, in my book, How Food Shapes Your Child, I wrote a chapter on building a brain. And within building the brain, it also has got what goes into building the brain. So that 40% of the brain that's made of the fats. What are they fats? What do they do, et cetera, et cetera. But it also goes into, um, I've got a table of how to help a child concentrate, learn and remember. So the, the vitamins and minerals, we always forget about vitamins and minerals. And they are so influential to all of us in terms of what they do. So if we have, if we're deficient in a certain vitamin or mineral, it can have really big impact on our concentration, 
Now, like iodine, for example, is linked with IQ. So when we're talking about exams and remembering things and concentrating and all of those things, there's lots of foods that we can include. And they are normally not in a vegan diet. That is the only thing that I would say. Naturally, most of the foods that are important for this are from animal-derived protein sources because protein is made up of, of lots of amino acids, nine of which are essential. And animal-derived protein sources contain all nine. So they're like a complete package of everything that we need. And those amino acids go off and do lots of amazing things in the body in terms of helping us to, you know, not only regulate blood sugar, but balance our moods, metabolize energy, all those things. But iodine, as an example, most people can eat eggs. And they're obviously very accessible, um, very easy and versatile to do lots of things with. So if you know there's a day where you need to be on your game and, and concentrate eggs breakfast maybe with whole grain rather than white bread because whole grains contain b vitamins and b vitamins are very important for energy transfer so you know blood sugar regulation keeping energy stable but also for brain health and development and for making a, a chemical in the brain that supports memory function so B12 does that, as does vitamin C. So glass of orange juice, vitamin C, preferably with bits in because of the fiber. Whole grain toast, B vitamins, complex carbohydrates, keep the blood sugar nice and stable. Eggs, source of iodine, but also a source of phospholipids, which are really good in terms of an essential fat. And EFAs, essential fatty acids. So they're the power breakfast to help you concentrate and get through the day and keep the blood sugar stable. Studying. If you're sitting down, you know, the attempt, then I remember this with my flashcards and all the rest. And about 10 minutes later, I'll be looking for something else to do. But if you're sitting down to do that, one thing that's always popular is that dark chocolate helps, but it does have to be dark. So dark chocolate aids, it's stimulating to brain tissue and it aids concentration, as do Brazil nuts because they're high in selenium. So a dark chocolate Brazil nut would be a really good steady snack. But not too many. Presuming that's not the um, like the, the Cadbury's Bourneville type dark chocolate. You're talking about chocolate that's actually got. No, that's not that's not dark. No, no. At least seventy percent. Oh wow! And if you're a milk chocolate or a white chocolate fan, that will taste very bitter to you. But you can adapt because you eat less. I say that somebody challenged me on that once and sat in an entire bar of dark <laughs> chocolate just to prove me wrong. But I, normally you eat less dark chocolate because it's more satisfying without needing to overindulge but I, I'm wary of saying that now because somebody did prove me wrong on that <laughs> I, I I would have taken up that challenge but it's a it's an audio podcast so it wouldn't be a, it'd be for no one's benefit um including um it seems my own <laughs> <laughs> so a good a good breakfast is obviously a, a great way to start the day it's sort of well-held law that um, breakfast is the most important meal of the day but also love actually thinking about the different um, snacks that you can have and and so these are so something like the dark chocolate and the brazil nuts um they can give a a, a much quicker turnaround mm. in terms of the benefits that they deliver for concentration is that right yeah and if we're thinking of a, an instant sort of gratification many people might sit down and with a can of you know a sugary drink you know or even worse an energy drink and sit there with that and maybe some you know i don't know crisps or some chocolate but not the dark chocolate what they will do will actually have the opposite effect on concentration levels so what they will do they will you will consume them and you may think i'm having a bit of a slump i need some sugar many people think that i'm having a slump i need some sugar 
So you eat that and it's it's sort of digested much quicker, it's absorbed much quicker into the bloodstream, but it instantly creates this blood sugar high. Now that doesn't last very long, it's not sustainable. So we have a temporary, potential temporary mood elevation by the activation of dopamine, which sort of makes us feel, you know, a bit for a little while. Um, but then when the blood sugar drops, which will happen fairly quickly because there's nothing to sustain it, it's not a regular, it's a spike. So will the mood, but because the dopamine has been activated and dopamine is pleasure reward center of the brain, it's linked with addictive tendencies, we then don't feel satisfied. So we're then thinking, one's wandering off to you, what can I eat now? You know, and we're not feeling satisfied, you know, that we've had something. The mind is instantly drifting to what else we can have. Couple that with the fact that our mood is slumped because the blood sugar drops. And when that happens, we feel irritable, confused, potentially even angry, very fidgety. They're not the things that fuel sitting down to do steady. Quite the opposite. So with because as you say, dark chocolate's not for everyone. I'm also imagining that actually, certainly with a number of teens, there might be initial resistance to um, to doing this because it just it doesn't give them that dopamine high, as you say. Is it a case that our teens should sort of experiment, just sort of try different things and and see how it goes, and I suppose be kinder to themselves, which is something we had before. Dark chocolate might give them a high because dark chocolate also helps the production of the hormone oxytocin which is the hormone that we get when we fall in love, when a woman gives birth. It's a very mood-altering hormone, but it's a kind of happy, safe-feeling kind of hormone. So they may get a high from the dark chocolate because that promotes oxytocin. I think it's fascinating that there are so many things that actually can alter the mood that we tend to we tend to go for the default. I'd like to think it's a sort of a brainwashing effect um, that we get from the brands and the, the TV advertising and all of the other stuff that goes on. But actually, with a bit of effort, it does seem that we could find ourselves some good alternatives and give us so much more benefit or give our teens in particular so much more benefits than just being able to feel sanctimonious about having a, a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, they need to be in control. But if, if they can be in control of making those choices and experimenting and being aware of why, not just that they're being told to, then I think it will work much better. But there are, I know I've painted a fairly gloomy picture at times, um, but it's only to highlight that's what's happening if we let it. We don't have to let it happen. Well, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Louise is clearly very passionate about her subject, and you can see why. And we all know by now that you are what you eat, but it's been so interesting to find out that there's actually so much more to it than that. And many of us actually would do well to make improvements to our diets and perhaps to our overall approach to food. When it comes to thinking about our young people, the best place to start is clearly with a conversation with them about the long and short-term benefits of nutrition. There aren't many of us that can really dictate what our teens are eating now, even if we are the ones that are still cooking their meals. Although, of course, I can and have hidden finely diced vegetables in past sources before now. What we heard from Louise is that there's an awful lot of things that we need to worry about when it comes to the downside of not getting the right foods into us. Now, this can feel like fear-mongering, but actually this is a real catalyst for change. Unfortunately, of course, these downsides tend not to be the best route to making lasting changes. 
Instead, for me, certainly when I find the right time to chat with Emily, I'm going to be looking at leading with those positive benefits that can come from being altogether healthier, better concentration and focus, more energy. And I do understand that there are the benefits that will come from complexion and body image. But actually, for me, I'm not sure that this is a route that I want to go down just yet. I've got a feeling that this could become a bit of a Pandora's box. Like many teens, Em wants to do her best in exams and struggles to always find the right route through. But this seems like a fairly straightforward, entry-level way of making a first step. I mean, we might not go straight into 70% covered chocolate Brazil nuts, but we'll certainly be looking for a healthier alternative to a pack of hobnobs on a Mars bar. And I think that the clincher is also going to be around the fact that this is something that we could all do with addressing. And so thinking about last week's episode with Sheru, actually, if we approach this as a family, perhaps we'll be in a better position to hold each other to account. And maybe we'll be more likely to see it through if we think about the benefits that the other people are getting out of it. I imagine I'm going to be less likely to abandon this healthier lifestyle, knowing full well that actually, if I stick to it, it can help Emily with her studies and, really importantly, with a lifestyle beyond. My thanks to Louise for sharing so much great advice and to you for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share how things are going, or perhaps just talk about something that's playing on your mind, please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for practical ways that you can support your own young person to fulfil their potential through revision, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information about our innovative time management and study organising approach. And you'll also find a blog packed full of useful articles, hints and tips. To find out more, why not make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. If you did, I wonder if you'd mind leaving us a review and if it's not too much to ask, a five-star rating. It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like the rest of us, are looking to make some sense out of the run-up to exams. Of course, please don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.